Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, We Will Not Fear. We can shout boldly about having no fear, but when the moment of great testing comes, do we shriek like a little girl and go cower in a corner? If so, we are in essence saying that God is not strong enough to protect and preserve us, and we make Him and His promise out to be a liar. Thus, when testing and trials come, whether monumental or minuscule, may we choose to believe the steadfast promise of our Almighty King. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. We will not fear. I've gone back and forth, and if this is the best title for this. Uh, it's a good title, but it needs to be shouted, not just read. See, it doesn't read very well. And you need to have a huge emphasis, like make them all caps on will not in the middle. We will not fear. Now, most of you in here know that fear is not supposed to be a part of the Christian life. Some of you, that might be new information. If you hang around Ellerslie for any length of time, I'm going to play that message one way or the other every six months or so. You're going to have a clear understanding that fear is not a part of the Christian life. So many of us in here have at least accepted that, and we've seen some massive breakthroughs. Some of us that were addicted to anxiety and would always turn to it, fear, foreboding, fretting, seen massive change in our lives in that area. However, there can oftentimes still be a residue of low-lying fear that just sort of sits there in our life. And we accept it because, well, look, I mean, I've taken such great steps forward. You can't expect 100% freedom from something, can you? We do this in a lot of areas in our life, too. In other words, because you know how gross it was in your past, you have a tendency to accept the less gross state that you may be in now. And I just want to, as a fresh lecture to each of our souls, say that there is no allowance for darkness at any level. There is no residue that is allowed to, to be there. There are certain things that the fungus of dar- or the kingdom of darkness can grow on. And that is disobedience to the king. And when we do not stand in perfect alignment with the word of God expressed, then fungus, or in our case, fear, can grow. Fear is merely the result of the lack of God's truth permeating our life. Because truth makes free. God does not give the spirit of fear. He is not the one that is giving, foreboding, and fretting, and anxiety. That is a result of a departure from a clear alliance with the word of God. God speaks, we say, it's true. And then all fear is cast out. When you live in light of truth, fear has no breeding ground. None. So as we go through this, it's just a very fascinating exercise for the soul to behold how we oftentimes will diminish God's word. Not intentionally. But we will just subtly push it down. There's something about fear that makes us feel like we're doing something. Makes us feel active in the situation. Whereas strict believing in the word of God doesn't always seem to be the most sufficient answer. I need to do something. I need to fret. I need to be anxious about this. Instead of just resting and saying, God said it. Isn't that enough for all of us? He promised. We will not fear. I'll show you where I got that from. Psalm 46.2. We will not 
fear. Now, I'm going to give you the full context for that as we move forward. But what a statement. We will not fear. Speaking of the Jewish nation, the Hebrew nation that has been given the promises of Almighty God. We will not fear. Whoa, could you imagine an army marching into battle with that? We will not fear. So I'll give context for that instead of just taking it out, sticking it in front of you. The stress disorder. Now, unfortunately, I have to be poked at in this process. And I, those of you that go through Ellerslie know that at the age of 28, Eric Ludy had a stress disorder. So pitifully embarrassing. But I was on the front lines of Christian ministry. And I'd been on the front lines for quite a few years of my life. And I don't know exactly how far into our ministry that would have been, five, six years into ministry. And a lot of what I say now is still what I preached back then. And yet there was a missing dimension in my life, and you could call it the engine to the car. I had all the, the car, the car body, the steering wheel, I, you know, the, uh, the leather seats, I had this thing, and it still looks, from the outside looking in, it's like, isn't that the same car you were driving back when you were 23, Eric? Yeah, same car. It just runs now. Back then, it still provided shelter from the rain. I could get inside it, roll up the windows, and, uh, and it still worked at a certain level, but it didn't function the way a car is supposed to function. Every one of us knows that a car is not meant to sit in a parking lot. And yet, since all of our cars sit in parking lots and we get out and we wax them, some people leave them into disrepair and they're off, you know, weeds growing in them and we're like, oh, that's so disgusting. I can't believe they just let their life go like that. But then others of us polish them, you know, and wax them and, you know, Windex on the windows and we clean them up and we sit inside of them and read our Bible. Uh, We have our devotional time in them and, you know, wave at people in the parking lots. uh, Our car isn't going anywhere. A car is designed to actually take you from point A to point B. And yet point B, oh, well, no one actually goes there. That's heaven. And so as a result, we never progress in our Christian life to get to the point B. Victory over sin. How about a life that isn't under the thumb of anxiety, fear, and foreboding? How about a life that isn't ruled by lust and sexual deviancy? Oh, yeah, that's wishful thinking. Actually, no one ever lives that way. See, point B has been completely obscured because our cars don't work. Haven't you? Does your car work? And everyone has to say, oh, I guess my car doesn't work either. When you have a whole generation of cars that don't work, it becomes very easy to settle in that parking lot. And so, for me, I refused to settle in the parking lot. I just couldn't get, i try and push my car it's this crazy thing. I couldn't get it to move. It's way too heavy for me. I couldn't get this thing to function. I tried everything. I needed an engine. And that is one of the most critical things I ever went through in my life, which is detailed in great uh, detail at Ellerslie. In other words, we go through the exhaustive process of understanding how the engine works in our life, which is the life of Christ indwelling us. And if you understand the power of Jesus Christ, of being in Christ and then Christ being in you, it's like suddenly your car turns over for the first time. It's like, whoa! And then for the rest of your life, you're learning how to drive the crazy thing. And you need to go to auto mechanic school to make sure you keep it tuned. And you know, there's things you need to learn beyond just getting it started. But I tell you what, 
The Christian church is going to auto mechanic school without an engine. You need to have the engine to make auto mechanics make sense. So at the age of 28, Eric, Eric's seen the backside of the church. I'm seeing all the things that are wrong with it. And I didn't ask to see these things. I just have been given a front row seat. So a lot of the leaders in Christianity I got to meet. I got to see behind the scenes. I got to see them when they're not on stage. I got to be in pastor's houses. I got to see in the green rooms. That's that little room before you come out on the stage where everyone burps, scratches, and they come out and say hallelujah. In other words, before they go out, they're different than when they come out. And I didn't like seeing that discrepancy. That was really disturbing to me. Is there anything real in Christianity? And so I was really struggling. I'm a young idealist. I believe that if it says it in the Bible, we should live it that way in our Christian life. I know that sounds preposterous, but that's what I believed. And I've always believed that. The problem is I couldn't even get my own life to do it. I just wouldn't bend on the standard. So I felt convicted all the time. I still believe it means it. I don't know how to live it. But I refuse to bend on this point. God has some mechanism by which he's going to enable us to live. I just don't know what it is. So I remember we were in the Pittsburgh airport. We had just had a very, very stressful event where I was in the middle of the night. We we didn't have a sound system at this event. I remember our sound guy calls up. They actually don't have a working sound system here. And it was a whole big... uh, room that we needed to fill with sound. It was just, it was a horrible situation. This is like at midnight that we're finding this out. Our event starts in the morning. And I remember laying in bed that night and I started feeling the chest pains. Shortness of breath. (laughs) And anxiety just had a right to my body. And I'd never been able to tell it no. For the past, I don't know what it had been, maybe four years Anxiety, whenever it desired to come into my life, had access. And you could say it this way, legal access into my life. You say, how horrible, Eric. I thought you said you were a Christian. Yeah, I was a Christian leader. And yet, I didn't understand how the legal aspects of the human soul work. I didn't understand that though Jesus Christ had outright authority over my body, that I had to exert that authority and take that property for Jesus. And so when I was first married, this is at the end of our first year of marriage, uh, so I don't know, four years before this, three years before, I'm not exactly sure all the dates on these things, but it had been a chunk of time before this, I, we were going to move from Michigan to Colorado. And I am a guy who likes, when I'm packing a truck to move, I get it all right, and everything's laid in there, nothing's going to shift, and everything's tied, and it's just, it looks good even. I can step back and go, uh-huh, it's a work of art. My stuff was strewn all over Michigan, you know, in this person's basement, this person's barn loft. And so I had to take my rider truck from one spot to the next, and I kept on having to pack stuff in, and it was like precarious, and this, you know, this dresser sitting on top of a box of plates, you know, it's just everything about it was terrible. And so I am miserable the whole day, and finally at the end of the day, I shut the door to this rider truck, put on the lock, all right, that's done. That's done. Okay, let's get some sanity back, Eric. Let's get some sanity. Because I'd been grumbling and complaining all day long. And I walked into our little condo. After packing that thing so tight, you know, the door is like... And I looked back through the glass door in the very back of the condo, and there's my grill. Now, for most of you, you could say, Eric, it's not that big of a deal. Just sell the grill on Craigslist. 
Craigslist didn't exist at that time, and I wasn't thinking very sanely either. I gave in to anxiety in that moment. I basically, if you want to look at it as a transaction, I said, anxiety, you have access to my body. I deserve to allow you to come in and do whatever you want in me because this is one of those situations which deserves anxiety. And I literally began to paralyze up. I couldn't hardly breathe. I couldn't talk. And I laid down on the floor. And I was just sort of sitting there like an idiot. Uh, and Leslie came and was like, well, what's wrong with you? I'm like, a grill? Can you say pathetic with me? But this actually, I didn't know what I was doing. It's just, you know, ramifications of things like grills being left on your back porch. This is what happens, isn't it? Well, I start progressing in ministry. And little things would happen. And what would happen to my soul? Same effect. I'd be in green rooms before I'm going to walk out to speak on stage. And I'd be on the floor. <laughs> paralyzed. With anxiety. I was struck with such junk when I entered into the Christian ministry world. I'd never seen so much junk just flying across the rooms. Men and women living such opposite lives of what they testified with their mouth. And I saw it all, and I'm just a young guy. And then knives being stabbed into my back, money being robbed from us, from the church. And so Eric's just dying. So here we are in Pittsburgh, and I just barely made it out of that event alive. That whole night, could hardly breathe. I'm carrying a bag through the Pittsburgh airport, and I had to set it down because I had no more strength. And I was a little concerned. I didn't want Leslie to think anything. Just like, I'm just taking a break. I didn't tell Leslie any of this, by the way. And if you're married, you understand the dynamic. You don't want your wife to overreact. This is not a big deal because wives want to send, you know, call for ambulances and things like that. And there's no way we're calling for an ambulance, okay? I'm fine. And so I set down my bag, and she goes, are you all right? Yeah, doing fine. Just break. You need a break? You know, I'm like, this is, I don't know if I didn't have a rolling bag. I don't know how long ago this was. But, uh, and so I set down the bag, and I pick it up. I'm like, let's keep going. And I had to set it down again. She goes, okay, what's going on? All right, don't, don't overreact. I just, just have a little, <clears throat> just shortness of breath and a little pain. A pain? Uh, and so, you know, it's a classic thing where if you've never gone through it, you think it's a heart attack or something, and she could just picture her 28-year-old husband dying of a heart attack. I end up in the hospital. None, you know, it's just so embarrassing. Uh, I end up in the hospital, and I'm diagnosed not with a heart attack, which would have had so much more dignity associated with it, <laughs> but with a stress disorder. Eric doesn't know how to carry his stress. And so as a result, you know, these are the things that are happening. And I, I remember the guy saying, you have the same amount of stress that I've seen in 60-year-old business executives. What are you doing? Well, welcome to ministry without the power of God. And I mean that. You do not want to go to the front lines of the Christian world if you do not know Jesus Christ in his power. Not just in theory, not just in fact and historical data, in power. And so, Eric was pathetic. And we have other messages during our Ellerslie semester. I'll walk through literally what God took me through and how he began to train my soul for strength. Because I recognized that the slightest weights would crush me. Slightest weights. It was ridiculous. I could not stand up and lead because if a little wind blew against me, I was short of breath. 
And so God began to train me how to carry weights. He started with small ones, and I began to embrace them and say, God, make me stronger through this weight. God, make me stronger. God, make me stronger. To the point, I remember catching the vision. Eric, I have a calling on your life, and that's to carry weights that would crush everyone around you. You can't even carry a pebble right now. But if you'll allow me to train you, I'll build you into a man. So this message flows out of a deep well of personal stuff for me. I've walked through this at many, many levels, and I still see more levels to go. I'm not a finished project in this, in this particular case. When we start talking about, I will not fear, that sounds like something I would say, you have to admit. It doesn't necessarily mean that I still don't have my moments where anxiety is knocking. However, I would say it this way. At the age of 28, I was suffocating under the weight of anxiety, controlled by it. I had an anxiety disorder. I was, there was a stronghold of anxiety in my life, however you want to call it. Uh, that's what it was. At the age of 41, which is what I am now, I have basically zero anxiety in my life. And I carry weights at least 100 times bigger than I carried then. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not susceptible. I have to keep my guard up, and I have to understand exactly where I'm at at all times, and this message is critical for me. But that's the power of God to change a man from being in the hospital truly a pathetic picture of what God can do. I mean, I, had, I could do nothing. I could do nothing to even rouse myself up off the ground to God making a man strong to carry weights. One of the terms that Leslie and I will always use when we're hitting a challenge, when we're hitting something as difficult as we always say, let's get rock beneath our feet. What we mean by that is let's go to scripture and let's ask God to reveal his truth on this matter because if we have rock beneath our feet, you know that we will not be moved, we will not be shaken, and we will not fear. When you do not have a firm footing, when you do not have something to adhere to that you know is bigger than you and is not going to budge, you will fear. Fear is a direct result of not having rock beneath your feet. If you do not have something firm to build upon, then you will feel unstable when the winds and the rains begin to beat against you. Is this house going to stand? Will we fall? I don't know. I don't feel very comfortable about my foundation. You have to feel good about your foundation. You have to have confidence in that hour of trial. Otherwise, fear will grow. Fear will pounce. You must have rock beneath your feet. Believing the record. I'm just going to get some terms out here. And we might refer to these terms the entire time we're going through this message. But believing the record. This comes from uh, John, by the way. He uses this word record. And it's translated about three or four different ways in the New Testament. But he uses it almost exclusively. It's almost like no, one, no other writer in the New Testament even hardly touches the word. But John, in the book of John, I mean, must have it 24 times in the book of John itself. In the book of 1 John, littered throughout it, and then Revelation. It's just really fascinating. John loves this word. Okay, but the concept is the record. It's a legally binding statement of fact. This is true, and in a court of law, it bears witness and he saw that it bare record, and his record is true, and he knows that he saith true that you might believe. This is in the context of John stating what he witnessed in Jesus dying on that cross. He's saying, hey, look guys, 
I saw it and I bear a record. And my record is true and, and I know that I say true that you might believe. Why is the record given? That we might believe. There's a key outflow of this record being given. He that believes not God hath made him a liar. I'm going to refer to that line over and over and over again. You know why? Because one of my titles for this, in fact, uh, Sandy had said, hey, you should call this message this. Are you calling God a liar? Wouldn't that have been a good title? Are you calling God a liar? He that believes not God hath made him a liar. Are you, are you calling God a liar? See, I just used it. Because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. God has given a record of Jesus Christ. A legally binding testimony of Jesus Christ. There is a record. Do you believe it? Because if you believe it, life works. Believe me, as you'll see. If you don't believe it, you're calling God a liar. And you're truly the seedbed for fear to begin to grow on. For the record, I, I love this line. This could have been a great title for the message as well, but it's a little too limited of a subject. I, John, who bear record of the word of God, so there he is already talking about that record, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw, I, John, who, am also, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why was he in Patmos? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the same word, testimony there, for record. Now, why the translations bounce back and forth and don't just make it constant, not exactly sure, but they're trying to help us out. But it's for the record of Jesus Christ that John is on this island. That's why he's there. It's for the word of God and for the record of Jesus Christ. This record of Jesus Christ was established by God in the text of Scripture, and it's established by God in and through the saints of God. Get this, in and through their suffering. And we bear record. You know what the word for record is? Oh, well, let's, let's explore that a little. I, John, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So just, there's the word testimony. Marturia. You ever heard the word martyr? Mm-hmm. There's your word. The record. That which bears testimony. That which bears legal record and witness in a case. The evidence which establishes firm confidence in right judgment. And then I gave a list of records. The Bible, Jesus Christ, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. You know that the church is one of God's records for helping people believe? That you may believe. I've done this in my church. That you may believe. He's revealed 66 canonized books. That you may believe. He sent forth his son into this world to demonstrate perfect righteousness. That you may believe. He died upon that cross. And bore the weight of the wrath of God upon him and fulfilled all righteousness and fulfilled all the scriptures leading up to it. That you may believe he resurrected from the dead and proved the sign of Jonah and fulfilled his very words of prophecy. That you may believe he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. That you may receive the Comforter. That you may believe he has given this world the church of Jesus Christ. We are that record. That you may believe there's martyrs' blood to testify. The blood of the martyrs, the blood of the record bearers, is the seed of the church throughout history. Isn't that an amazing thought? 
I, John, was in the aisle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the martyria of Jesus Christ. If we receive the martyria of men, the martyria of God is greater. So if we receive the testimony or the evidence, the legally binding evidence of men, which we do all the time, by the way, John just wants us to know that the testimony or the martyria, the record of God is greater. What are you looking at? What are you heeding? God has given us a record. Are you going to believe it? For this is the martyria of God, the record, the testimony, the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God hath the martyria, the record, the witness, the testimony in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar. It's that simple. If you do not believe this record, you are calling God a liar. If you believe the record, you're saying, my God is truth. Christianity in a nutshell. You either believe the record of the Son of God or you don't. If you don't, you're calling God a liar. If you do, things go quite well. Because he believes not the martyria, the testimony, the witness, the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the martyria, the record, the testimony, the witness that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. How are you handling the record? You'll notice I am very passionate about the Word of God being maintained in all its integrity in our generation because it is the record. It is the testimony. It is the martyria. It is the martyria, the legally binding witness so that we can make right judgment. If you are not given the martyria, if you are not given the record, you can't make right judgment. You don't know how your car is supposed to work. But when you are given the correct, then you must choose how you're going to handle it. Are you going to believe the word of the record? Are you going to believe it? Or are you going to call God a liar and listen to the testimony of the martyria of men? Do you remember the Garden of Eden, by the way? God gave a martyria. He gave a record unto Eve. Eve knew what God had said. She knew it. There was a record. She was bound to it, in covenant with it. And yet the serpent came in and supplied a new record. The record of the serpent, the martyria of the serpent. It was a legal argument that was laid before her soul and everything that was taking place was a legal action. Sin is based on legal property given. And in that day, Adam and Eve surely died. They believed not the record and they heeded and believed the record of the devil, the first satanic doctrine ever delivered, was from that serpent. God is true. His words are life. If we dismiss them and we believe the record of the enemy instead, we die. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, the part that I didn't give you, remember Psalm 46, and I said, here's the scripture that this title comes from. Right in front of it, there's a therefore, which means context is needed. So here's, here's our preposterous statement is what I'm going to call it. Because you know there's a lot of preposterous statements in Scripture where God literally makes something sound so easy. She's like, yeah, just do this. Or, yeah, this is the effect. You're like, oh, I don't see that in my life. I really don't care if you see it in your life. I care that it's in the Bible, which means it's the record. Your job, like it is my job, is to believe, not to look at the martyria of your own experience. 
the legally binding evidence that you have cobbled together, but to say God has put together the martyria, the record, and I choose to believe it. So listen to this statement. Therefore, will not we fear, or we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Now, I cannot think of many other situations in life more ripe for fear than if you were standing somewhere and the earth was being removed and the mountains around you were being carried into the midst of the sea. Just test your soul. How well are you doing right now? Everything's falling. It's like, I'm doing great. Great. Just doing wonderful. We will not fear in such a circumstance. So I'm not just saying we will not fear when our football team looks like they're going to lose. Which, by the way, some of us still crumple in a moment like that. That's pathetic. That's nothing. That doesn't even matter. But how about when the earth is removed and the mountains are being carried in the midst of the sea? How about we will not fear when we get down to our last penny and it's asked for? And we have nothing left to live out the rest of the week before our next paycheck. We will not fear. Well, that's nothing. That's child's play next to this. This is the earth being removed and the mountains being carried into the midst of the sea. We will not fear. So, the preposterous statement. Now, what I'm going to do is give you context. I'm going to give you the line right before this statement that creates an understanding of why David says, therefore. See, to be grammatically correct, you can't just start out and take out a therefore statement. You need to give the context for it. The promise behind the preposterous statement. You see, every preposterous statement in the Bible, the reason it's even possible, and the reason we as Christians believe it is because there's a promise that comes before it. God isn't just saying, yeah, good things will happen. He gives a promise and then commands us to live it, to believe it. You must believe the record and out of it flows strength. So the promise behind the preposterous statement, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Hasn't anyone ever told you that? And what is David's response to this? Just think about this. I don't know how much that affects you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What's David say next? Therefore, based on the record, the fact that God is this, we will not fear. Isn't that amazing? We will not be moved. So here it is, put together. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Okay, another preposterous statement for you. This one in the New Testament. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Whoa! Did you hear how preposterous that was? That we will not fear what man will do unto us? Well, you know, man can do some very dastardly things, by the way. Man has come up with tremendous means of torture and inflicting pain. I don't know if you've ever studied Christian history, but it is some hard moments to swallow. And oftentimes the enemy will come up and utilize his vehicles of satanically inspired men to bring about some of the most wicked and devious things upon the saints of God. However, it says here, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Well, what's the context? Well, let's look at the promise behind the preposterous statement. He hath said, I will never leave thee nor 
forsake thee. Well, that's the record. So let's stare at the record for a second. This is the, con- this is the entire context, both statements together. He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, so. So that we may boldly say. Why do we boldly say we will not fear? Why? Because our God will never leave us nor forsake us. What do you believe in? Do you believe in the record? You believe in your experience. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us. He is a refuge. He's a strength. A very present help in a time of trouble. Hasn't anyone ever told you that? Look at the record. Believe the record. Are you going to call God a liar? He will be there. You have nothing to fear. Our God can only tell the truth. The Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And I boldly say it. The key operation of faith. I know this is going to seem like an oversimplification, but it's just the way it works. Choosing to believe the record. That's what faith is. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not some thing that we drum up inside of us. and we, It's the power of wishful thinking, saying, oh, I just want it to be true. I want it to be true. I want it to be true. Did God say it or not? If God said it, you believe it. Oh, my God cannot lie. He's promised. Yeah, that's true. And then you build your life around it. It's the basis of faith. It's the key operation of faith. You believe the record. It's not just any man's opinion. This is God's record. His witness. His testimony. This is his martyria. The key operation of fear. Now, all of this to get back to fear. The key operation of faith is believing the record. Well, the key operation of fear is calling God a liar. But we don't do that. That wouldn't be what we would do. So choosing to not believe the record would make a little more sense to us. A.K.A. believing the lie. You see, the enemy has a lie out there, and that that is this. God is not trustworthy. That's the lie. It's that simple. When he spoke to Eve in the garden, what what was his message? God is not trustworthy. You see, he doesn't want you to know something. He immediately attacked the credibility and the integrity of God. Hath God really said? That is the enemy's agenda. To undermine the confidence that we have in the record. But when we believe the record, life works. Truth makes free. However, when we believe the lie, when we don't believe the record, that is the breeding ground for fear. The enemy's agenda. He that believes not God has made him a liar. Because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. Says it pretty clearly, doesn't it? The lie. God is not trustworthy. I want you just to ask your soul if you are entertaining this lie at any level. Those of you that have had a rough past, especially with fathers that were abusive, that especially the father that was abusive and a pastor, boy, that's a tough one. Suddenly you can easily incriminate God because of the behavior of your own father. Because, hey, God's a father. And so it's guilt by association with a term. And I want you to realize that no matter what you have gone through in your past, God is a truth-telling God. God is faithful. God is exactly who he has revealed himself to be. It's up to us to deliberately choose to believe God and to agree with the record. 
The downward spiral into the solace of sin. Now, you're going to begin to notice this. If you doubt the trustworthiness of God, this is what leads to what we could call the downward spiral into the solace of sin. Sin has a certain solace to it. Just like the fruit on the tree has a certain solace to it to Eve, she's like, well, it really does look good for eating. In other words, there is a bait. Why would any of us give way to fear and anxiety? Why would any of us give way to lust? It's just going to kill our soul because it's fruit and it looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. And some of you could say, I have no interest in anxiety. That's because you've tasted the effects. The effects of anxiety have fully worked through your system. But at the beginning of it, it's man's solution to a problem. It's like, I can do this. I don't need God. I can do this. God, you overstate our need for you. I believe that I can do this. And anxiety is us laboring to do what only God can do. The downward spiral into the solace of sin. If God is not trustworthy, then I must labor to save myself. Think about it. This is actually makes sense. If you cannot trust God, then how about your salvation? Well, you can't really just trust that he's going to kick into gear at that last day and make sure that you're saved. You better build an insurance policy. I must labor to save myself, for I cannot be fully confident that God will do the saving work. Where did that come from? That came from you believing the lie and calling God a liar. And you begin to say, look, I need to do some work on my own. Otherwise, I mean, it could all go south in the end. Of course, it's all going south in the present day because you believe the lie. I must defend myself. Why? For I cannot be fully confident that God will take up my cause and protect me. Remember what David said? He is my strength. He is a refuge. He's a very present help in a time of need. Well, if you don't know that, guess what? You will have to come up with your own defense. I must sustain myself, for I cannot be fully confident that God will supply my needs. I must gratify myself, for I cannot be fully confident that God will bring me life, joy, and happiness. I must heal myself, for I cannot be fully confident that God either desires or is able to make me whole. I must make a name for myself, for I cannot be fully confident that God will labor to establish my legacy and glory. It's all about you. And that's exactly what the enemy's agenda is. The breeding ground for a life of fear is you taking control of your life and believing not the record of God, but believing the record of the enemy. Passion versus promise, the soul's defining moment. Now, those of you that have been at Ellerslie for a while know that I tell a story of fact, faith, and experience. Fact, they're all called to walk the ridgepole of a barn, and it's an impossibly steep ridgepole like a razor edge, and fact gets out there and just walks it. It's just extraordinary. He just walks it. Perfect balance. No wavering. And then the strangest thing is faith, which is us in the story, as long as it keeps its eyes focused on fact, the record, truth, it actually maintains balance and walks the ridgepole. However, life is not that easy. There's a third character known as experience. And experience, which in this case is going to be known as passion, it could be a feeling, an emotion, it's all that conspires to get our eyes off of the record. All the bait that the enemy has to say, come on, look this way. What about great Aunt Martha? Well, she prayed and then look what happened to her. There's always a bait to turn towards experience. However, the secret to getting experience to walk the ridgepole is you ignore it. And you, faith, keep your eyes focused on fact. And guess what? There's balance. 
And pretty soon, experience actually aligns itself with faith who is aligned with fact or the record. Or we could call it this, in this case, promise. I made some pictures for you guys. I don't know if you can see them very well. But you see, you see what's coming from the top. Now, it's not dark enough. Hopefully you guys can see it. But there's a ton of bricks coming, and it's going to hit this guy right in the head. When is fear and anxiety sponsored in our life? It's when we're struck. And it's usually a surprise attack. It's called winds and rains that beat against our house. Okay, but in this case, it's called the ton of bricks. Now, look at the guy. He's taken off guard. I mean, his mouth is open, his eyebrows up, and he has a choice between passion and promise. The guy's just minding his own business. Everything was fine in his life, and then a ton of bricks came out of nowhere and conked him on the head. Okay, now let's watch what happens. Like most of us, this guy turns immediately to passion. He turns immediately to self-solution. He turns immediately to experience. And his experience tells him if he doesn't do something and quick, all hell's breaking loose in his life. If he doesn't solve the dilemma instantly, it gets only worse. So he immediately turns to his own resources. In politics throughout American history, this is called passion and principle. In other words, men that are ruled by principle instead of passion. They're governed and they're steady of soul. They do not easily respond to anything. They only walk steady and in alignment with the record. So what we have is we have a guy who's beginning to turn towards passion instead of promise. Look at that guy. You see how, look at the difference in mouth here. This guy, this guy, the one who's turning towards passion, you know, it's not making anything better. In fact, it only makes it worse. We don't see that though. But the man who's immediately able to look over at promise gets a little smirk on his face. I believe the record. And as a result, there's a solidity of soul. There's a stableness of the inner man. And you say, I will not fear. Watch what my God will do. My God's in complete control. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He's my strong tower. He's my refuge. He's a very present help in time of need. And guess what? This is a time of need. So guess what? I have very present help. It's there. You don't have to feel it. You know it. You believe the record. My God will come through. Watch. You stand in agreement with Scripture. That is your job. You're called a believer. Not a feeler. You're a believer. You believe the record. The feelings come. Experience does line up. God is interested in your experience working. But experience works when faith believes. When faith puts its confidence in the record. Are you calling God a liar? This is what it says in Psalm 91.5. Thou shalt not be afraid. Whew. That makes it sound a little too simple, doesn't it? Thou shalt not be afraid. It's a command. Satan's least favorite psalm. Now, this is, this is one that even... Satan obviously knows about this psalm because he quotes it. Isn't that an interesting thought to think of Satan quoting a scripture? He quotes this to Jesus when he is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He quotes Psalm 91. So he was obviously very aware of this psalm. And as you read through it, you'll understand why he doesn't like it. However, he's gone overboard in our generation, diminishing its impact upon us. So here God gives us a record. And then most of us today honestly do not believe that Psalm 91 has any impact upon our lives. Now we wouldn't say that it you know, that it doesn't matter, 
It's just, well, God couldn't be talking about us. Our experience doesn't align itself with Psalm 91. Psalm 91 literally talks about God building a wall about the believer. They are untouchable. And yet, guess what? Since all of us have been very touchable throughout our life, Psalm 91 is just good poetry. We recite it to make ourselves feel better. We quote it as more of a therapeutic activity. But we don't believe it. I've had so many people say Psalm 91 isn't for today. All right, well, what day was it for? They say, well, I think it's talking about the Messiah. Oh, are you saying it's talking about the Messiah? Who is who? Well, Jesus. Who are you in? I'm in Jesus. Well, well, then if it's for the Messiah and you're in the Messiah, who's in you? Well, Jesus. Oh! I mean, it's ridiculous. Everything about it talks about the nature and the attitude of God towards those who find refuge in him. So let's read it real quick. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver me, deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings thou shalt trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor by the arrow that flieth by day nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. Listen to this. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. Who have you made your habitation? Who have you found refuge in? What's your position? In Christ! Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder. The young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. What do you do with this scripture? Uh, That's like super heroic living. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. He shall shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Listen to Charles Spurgeon's comment on this. It's extremely interesting. A German physician was wont to speak of the 91st Psalm. In other words, he was... It was common that he would make this comment. Was wont to speak of the 91st Psalm as the best preservative in the times of cholera. And in truth, it is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. He who can live in its spirit will be fearless. Even if once again London should become a laser house and the grave be gorged with carcasses. I know, a little descriptive there. That's the mentality of the church throughout the ages. Psalm 91. Is it part of the record or not? I am going to go on record as declaring it is a part of the record. And not an accidental part, not one that God was supposed to have deleted and he forgot to. God purposely set it in the text of Scripture and it is literally a preservative in the times of cholera. 
And in truth, it is a heavenly medicine against plague and pest. Well, I prefer to have it be a scripture I know and I believe in. Contemplating the record, should the believer fear? Interesting question. What does the record say? I don't really care what Eric has to say. I don't really care what you have to say. Should the believer fear? Let's just read the record. The Lord is their light and their salvation, so whom shall they fear? The Lord is the strength of their life, so of whom shall they be afraid? Though a host should encamp against them, their hearts shall not fear. Though war should rise against them, they remain confident in their God. Because God will never leave them nor forsake them, and he ever lives to make intercession for them. God is their refuge and strength, the very present help in their trouble. Therefore, they will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. And no weapon that is formed against them shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against them in judgment, God shall condemn. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Did you hear that list? That's the record. Do you see a lot of trembling? I see a lot of fearlessness. I will not fear. You will not fear. Why? Do we have a reason? Do we have a record we can turn to? Are we just hoping that we don't fear? You don't try and drive out of fear out of your own life. You don't just say, I'm getting rid of fear. You come to Jesus and in him is no fear. And that's where you live because he's a wall that surrounds you. And if it can't get through Jesus, it can't get to you. How did lust fare in getting through Jesus? It didn't make it. How did fear do in getting through Jesus? It didn't make it. How did pride and any arrogance and greed did it make it? Could it get through Jesus? No. Who are you in? You're in Jesus. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Do you know that this one who created the heavens and the earth and whoever lives to make intercession for us and who will save us to the uttermost, do you know that he will never leave you nor forsake you? And suddenly all that weight that you've been trying to carry goes, Phew. you mean I'm secure in Christ? You better believe it, you are. Hasn't anyone ever told you that? You remain in Christ. It's that simple. Remain. Abide. You stay in him. And you are preserved. Get into the shadow of the Most High. That's where we live. In his presence. The Jewish mind on preservation. This this is an unusual scripture to quote, okay? and you'll see why. It's scripture, but it's spoken by Eliphaz, who is one of the three friends of Job. And have you ever noticed that we have a tendency, if the three friends speak, is like, ah, throw it out. The reason they were corrected is not that everything they said was wrong. It's that they assumed something, and that was that Job had sinned, and that is the reason why Job is suffering. However, there's this quote that Eliphaz gives, and the reason I call it the Jewish mind on preservation is because this is how the Jews look at the preservation of Jehovah over their individual lives and over their country, over them as a, as a nation. It's extremely fascinating to meditate upon. So Eliphaz the Temanite said this, He, meaning God, shall deliver you in six troubles. Yes, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine he shall redeem you from death. And in war from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the scourge of the tongue, and you shall not be afraid of destruction when it comes. You shall laugh at destruction and famine, and you shall not be afraid of the beasts of the earth. 
For you shall have a covenant with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is in peace. You shall visit your dwelling and find nothing amiss. You shall also know that your descendants shall be many, and your offspring like the grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave at a full age, as a sheaf of grain ripens in its season. And that's why Eliphaz said, Therefore, since that's the way God protects his children, something's wrong with you. Because why is it that you're being touched? You know what it says even in Job 1? That there was a hedge about Job that the enemy could not get through. The enemy came to God and said, hey, you've hedged him in. I can't touch him. Yeah, that's exactly the point. You know what? The book of Job doesn't cover that big of a stretch of time. It was a period, a window of time in this man's life. Before it and after it, the man could not be touched. Think about Jesus. Before the cross and after the cross, the man cannot be touched. I'll show you that in scripture, by the way, in a second. You know what Job means? Hated and despised. That's what Job means. Hated and despised. Who names his child or her child? Job. Then Utz, where he's from, means the place of the wood. Hated and despised, the place of the wood. Okay? You start to see Jesus. That's what Job is mainly pointing at. There's a lot more to Job, and I'm not going to try and cover Job today. All the men must come up. Go forth, wholly trusting your God. You know what, for the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the commands was? All the men needed to come up to Jerusalem. They needed to leave their farms. They needed to leave their homes. The women and children weren't, it wasn't mandatory that they did come up. Now, they may come up, but it wasn't mandatory. But the men had to come up. You know, if you're the Philistines and you're a nearby country, and you know that God has commanded all the men to leave their homes and their fields and everything they possess and go to Jerusalem, when are you going to attack? When are you going to come against Israel? In the midst of their little celebration, their little party. You know what God promises? He says, you obey me and you go up to Jerusalem. No one will touch your homes. He says, believe the record. Go. You know that no one could touch a Jewish man's home when he left to go up to that feast. Isn't that an incredible statement? Do we know that when we go to the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate the habitation of Jesus as our home, that we, our lives, will not be touched? Do you know that nothing can truly snuff out the work of grace in your life? Nothing can separate you. Now, I know what comes out of this. You could say, well, what about all the Christians that die martyrs all the time? It's actually a different issue It's the same issue, but it's a different slice of the same issue. And you're going to see this, that the life of Christ is an untouchable life. No one can lay hands on it. However, Jesus, in the fullness of time, when his hour had come, gave himself. He was not taken. He gave himself. And we as Christians, when we come unto Christ, we are secured. And then what do we say to Christ? You can spend me. You can spend me for your glory. And we, like Job, can be made vulnerable, if you will, to the work of the enemy, but we are untouchable in every regard in our inner man, though our bodies be touched. It's a, it's a deeper well, and we have other messages that will cover that. All the men must come up. Go forth. Holy trust in your God. The Christian mind on preservation. This is just a great uh, little ditty from White Cross's anecdotes about Lord Craven in England. This is the time of the plague. And I want to say it's the bubonic plague. I I don't actually know that for sure, but I think it was. 
Lord Craven lived in London when that sad calamity, the plague, raged. His house was in that part of the town called Craven Buildings. He's a very wealthy man, Christian man. On the plague-growing epidemic, his lordship, Lord Craven, to avoid the danger, resolved to go to his seat in the country. So if you're in London and plague has broken out and you have a house in the country, where are you going to go? Yeah, I'm leaving London and I'm getting to the country. Would you blame him? So, resolved to go to his seat in the country. His coach and six were accordingly at the door. His baggage put up and all things in readiness for the journey. As he was walking through his hall with his hat on, his cane under his arm and putting on his gloves, in order to step into his carriage, he overheard his black servant, who served him as a postillion, saying to another servant, I suppose by my Lord's quitting London to avoid the plague that his God lives in the country and not in town. The poor black servant said this in the simplicity of his heart is really believing a plurality of gods. The speech, however, struck Lord Craven very sensibly and made him pause. My God, he thought, lives everywhere and can preserve me in town as well as in the country. I will even stay where I am. The ignorance of that black servant has just now preached to me a very useful sermon. Lord, pardon this unbelief and that distrust of thy providence which made me think of running from thy hand. He immediately ordered his horses to be taken from the coach and the baggage to be taken in. He continued in London, was remarkably useful among his sick neighbors, and never caught the infection. Time and time again, in this exact plague and infection, Christians had the opportunity to leave the destitute and dying. Instead, they went in. Story after story after story after story can be told of the Christian missionaries that gave up their life and were completely secure in the pouring out of their life in and amongst the plague. It only makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you know the promises of the New Testament, you know that that falls well within the boundaries of it. Not just in Psalm 91, but within the boundaries of everything Jesus says in the New Testament. The fearless legends of yesteryear. Hudson Taylor. I'm called to China. Laying on his deathbed with that plague, Hudson Taylor resolves, I mean, he was told by his uh, medical teacher, because he was in medical school at the time, and he'd had like a paper cut in his finger, and they were working on plague victims. That's what they were studying as their cadavers. And they were never to have any open wound on their body lest the plague would get into their bloodstream. Well, he had a paper cut, and he forgot about it. So he's working, and suddenly he begins to feel weak, And his medical director looks at him and says, you've got it. Go home, prepare your things, and prepare to die. That's like how they handled death in those days, because everyone died. Uh, It was like mass deaths around them. So it's just like, yeah, you've got it. Go home. So he goes home, but he wasn't preparing to die. He was laying in his bed without any strength. And the key moment, defining moment in his life, I mean, literally at Ellerslie, if we were to say, What we are training up, we're training up Hudson Taylor's and Amy Carmichael's. Two of the stories I'm going to tell you come from Hudson Taylor and Amy Carmichael. Hudson Taylor laying there, and he rises up, sticks his feet on the floor, and he says, I'm called to China. Stands up. Walks. The story behind it is extraordinary. On his journey over to China, their boat that he's on is literally being, you know, cast by the wind and the, and the waves against the shoreline, about to crash into these very precipitous rocks. And there's cannibals that are preparing fires on the beach. And everyone is afraid. And Hudson Taylor says, have you ever thought of praying? 
and he made a declaration to everyone. I know we're not going to crash. I know we're not going to die and end up in those bellies. How do I know that? God has called me to China. To China, I'm going to go. It's just incredible. But it was a fearlessness. He literally did not shudder. He knew the record in his own soul. He knew what God was doing. He knows he's going to get there. Everyone else dies of the plague. Not Hudson Taylor. Everyone else crashes into the rocks. You know what happened? The wind changed at that very moment and began to blow them out. It's just extraordinary. Everyone on the ship saw the power of God in this man's faith. Reese Howells, they're in Africa, and the plague is in Africa. It seems like plagues are a great time for Christianity to be truly tested. And everyone was dying. That is, everyone except for those that were on Reese Howells' property. He made a declaration, anyone, not one person will die from the plague who finds shelter on our land. And so they had all these pagans, all these witch doctors, everyone that finally broke because they were so afraid. Some of them even had the plague. But they would come onto that property because they knew and they believed the record because it was proven no one would die on that property. Do any of us have the guts to make such a declaration of our God in this day and age? C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd is sick. His body doesn't even function. He's had almost every conceivable disease. And when he finds out that interior Africa has never been evangelized, he says, I'm the one to go. 52 years old and a dying man. He, does not, he is not approved by the medical board. So as a result, no, no missionary society will touch him and no missionary society will send him. So he says, God's sending me. He's my missionary society. But he's going into interior Africa. In interior Africa, the white man's uh, immune system is not fit for it. And so as a result, it will be within three days, a normal healthy man would probably die in interior Africa because of the diseases that are foreign to his bloodstream. C.D. Studd is already a dying man, and he goes straight into interior Africa, and 20 years later, interior Africa is turned on its head. He did not fear what man could do to him. He did not fear disease and plague. He did not fear human frailty and weakness. He despised it, and he went straight into it. Amy Carmichael, she was sickly and told not to go to India. She, of course, did the same as Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd. And as it says, knowing all the risks, I'm going. The first turn to the hiding place called God. When those ton of bricks land upon your life, where are you turning? What our souls must be disciplined towards is a constant readiness to turn to the hiding place. We find our refuge in the record. The record, by the way, is Jesus Christ. We find our refuge in the Word of God. Yes, in text, but in person. He is literally the strong tower that surrounds us. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. William Bridge says, There is a faith whereby a man does betake himself unto God for shelter, for protection as to his habitation. When other men do run one this way, another that way, to their hiding places, in the time of a plague, for a man then to betake himself to God as to his habitation, I think this is the faith here spoken of in the 91st Psalm. Thou shalt not be afraid. 
There's our Psalm 91.5. Thou shalt not be afraid. Not only do the pious stand safe, they are not even touched with fear. That is a great statement. Not only do the pious stand safe, they are not even touched with fear. The body of Christ in hostile territory. What's your position? If you are in Christ, then the attributes of his body actually are given unto you. And so the way in which Christ's body engaged in this natural realm, I think it's safe to say, is a reasonable conclusion of how your body is going to engage in this natural realm. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. The life of the Messiah, the very evidence of God Almighty, is going to be demonstrated in and through the church. We are pictures of him being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So the body of Christ in hostile territory. I know it's a lot of different scriptures, but what you're going to see is a theme here that comes out of John. John is making something very clear throughout John 7 through 11. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. But they can't take him. You notice that? No one can touch him. They were going to push him over a cliff, and he walked right through them. They can't stop the Messiah. They cannot stop his agenda. His hour has not come. When your hour has come, give up. But if your hour has not come, stick those feet on the floor and rise up. You have a job to do. That is the attitude of the believing triumphant church throughout the ages. We do not fear. We rise up in faith and walk. Why? You've seen the record? When it's your time to go, you know how the Christians have responded throughout history? They rejoice. They don't get all depressed and go, oh, my hour's come. My hour's come. Oh, finally. (laughs) Paul says to live is Christ. I mean, that's wonderful, but to die is gain. My hour has come. Ignatius praised God and worshiped. He was going to be fed to the lions in the morning. And he worshiped God and celebrated. Why? He got to go home to be with the one he loved more than anything. He called the lions his friends because they were the ones that were going to do the task of bringing him home. Who thinks that way? A Christian. We do not fear. We do not fear living long here on earth. We do not fear living short here on earth. We live in Christ and we will not fear because he will never leave us nor forsake us. He is our strong tower and our refuge, a very present help in time of need. If you ever have a time of need, I know someone who will be right there. The Christian has nothing, and I mean it, nothing to fear. Acts 28. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
That is the greatest understatement. <laughs> this is a poisonous viper. It's such that Paul should immediately begin to die in this situation. It is latched onto his head. I don't know how many of you would handle it. If I get, like, have you ever had it where you're, like, taken off guard because you look down, there's a spider on your hand? You're like, huh! Well, could you imagine looking down, there's a viper hanging from your hand. Just imagine Paul is like, eh, off into the fire. He just completely ignored it. It had no impact upon him. It didn't feed upon any anxiety and fear within his soul. Just, huh, no, I'm protected. I have a job to do. I'm headed to stand before Caesar. You think I'm going to die because of a viper? You've got to be kidding. Don't you know whose errands I'm on? My God protects me. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. (laughs) Behold, says Jesus, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Whoa. Did you hear that? That is the record, by the way. I didn't come up with that. That's the record. You're going to call God a liar. Think about it. Are you able to stare at that scripture and say, I believe? Or are you starting to rationalize and reason through your grid of experience? Are you calling God a liar? And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will take up serpents And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Most of us don't quite know what to do with Mark 16. That's why some people try and excuse it out of the Bible and say the most reliable manuscripts don't include it. Well, all the fathers of the faith in the early 1st, 2nd, 3rd century all had it in their Bible. I choose to have it in mine. Living as immortals in mortal bodies. What should we expect of our dying bodies? We're in dying bodies. Are we supposed to keep these things going for all time? Or can we accept the fact that at the age of 80, we may start to break down? It's an interesting question. I mean, with all the promises of Scripture, should I expect to live forever? He's the resurrection and the life. Who are you in? Christ. Well, he's the resurrection and the life. I mean, don't you just live forever? You will live forever. However, you're in a temporary tent. You're in what's called a mortal body. What is inside of you is eternal, but this shell is not meant to last any more than we're trying to preserve the earth around us for all time. Because God says, hey, hey guys, I'm burning it up. Okay? Don't spend all your time trying to save it. I'm burning it up. If you're going to spend your time on the things God has as a priority, make sure that the soul is at the top because it's eternal. There's dying people all around us and we're trying to save things that aren't going to last. Now, by the way, I'm all into keeping a nice, orderly environment. I do not throw trash all over my floor. I clean it up. And the same thing I would say about the environment here on earth. Okay, I may not be accused very often of being green, but I'm not anti-green. In other words, I think we should recycle. I'm all for it. I'm not going to make it a religion. However, I think we should keep a clean environment. But that said... The reason I keep a clean environment isn't for the clean environment. It's for the family that's in that environment, that they would thrive and know Jesus. Okay? That is the priority, Jesus. Living as immortal, more immortals in mortal bodies, what should we expect of our dying bodies? Hudson Taylor's sick with the plague. Shouldn't you just accept the plague? 
Not if it's not your hour. Not if your time has not come. You have a job to do. And your faith is requisite to believe the record to say, unto the hour, you will be strong. That's our job. When the hour comes, hey, take me, God, please. I can't wait to be with you. So here's a scripture to start us out in Romans 8. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So I have just a little meditation here. Let's go through it. The world looks and acts the same, almost as if nothing has changed since, since the cross. Just look outside. It doesn't look like Jesus has mastery over this creation. It's decomposing. It's falling apart. People are sick and dying. And yet you read about the cross work and you're like, boy, it seems so much more powerful than this. Our job is to believe the record. If you do not believe the record, you do not walk in the benefits of faith. You don't have access to the great cross work. It's faith that accesses it. How are we saved? By grace through what? Faith. You do not get the grace, the mighty, powerful work of God on your behalf unless you have faith. That's the conduit by which, it, by which it comes into your life. So this is the first great test of the Christian. Our first great test is we live in a dying world, though we have the record that testifies of life and life abundant. That's a little strange for many of us. Because this dying world around us is quite the record. It's quite the testimony. And God says, but my testimony is greater. My martyria is a greater testimony. Are you willing to defy what you're seeing with your natural senses and believe my record? All things are under my feet. I have brought a great redemption. I have a plan for men and women. And we're like, these corrupt men and women? Yes, I have a plan to rescue them, redeem them, justify them, fill them with my grace and to change them and make them a picture of my love and mercies for all the world to behold. Are you going to believe the record? Because that's rather fantastical. I mean, yeah, right. Have you seen how bad people are? They're a wreck. I believe the record. Those that believe are the hunted, despised, hated, persecuted, tempted, buffeted, tried to the uttermost, imprisoned, tortured, falsely accused, slandered, and etc. Though the cross work is finished, the work of grace is in full swing. For that which was purchased must now be brought to this earth in and through the operation of faith. The Christian can't seek ease. We must take the battle to the enemy. We must prove the great victory of the cross in this natural realm. For the human soul is not yet free from the battle of the sinful world. However, it is freed to finally win the battle with sin in the sinful world. And is thus bequeathed with all power and authority to become super conquering, immovable and invincible, fearless and unstoppable. The human soul, though still engaged in a battle with eternal consequence, is given grace by which to triumph and let not sin reign any longer in its territory. The human body, like the human soul, is not yet free from the battle with the influences and deadly effects of the natural world. Whereas the cross did make a way for us to one day don a new and incorruptible body, we still as yet, though believing, don the elder form of our bodies, which are corruptible, always aging, and bent toward decomposition. You ever notice that about your body? Yeah. Let me read it again, just for those of you that are trying to defy it. They're corruptible, always aging, and bent towards decomposition. Now, some of us, we need to know what battles to fight. Are we supposed to fight the aging process? Are we supposed to fight sin? <laughs> what are we fighting here? 
We're trying to oftentimes prop up things that are not necessarily the primaries. That said, if this is your earthly tent for 80 years, take good care of it. In other words, sort of like going green in the human sense. Take care of that body. Just don't make the body your focus. However, though our bodies may prove weak, unfit, vulnerable, and wholly unsatisfactory for this engagement called the Christian Commission, this is very important, we have been bequeathed grace for this battle. And therefore, our elder bodies, though far from ideal, these are our elder bodies. They're not our new bodies. They're our old bodies. We're still stuck. We have a new man in an old body, if you will. And so we still are stuck with the old version of the body. And it's far from ideal. But these bodies are equipped to live triumphantly, ever faithful and ever strong for the purpose of Jesus Christ in the midst of this natural world. And though we fully realize that our current bodies are heading toward the grave, we recognize that they cannot go there until our work is finished here on this earth. All right, I'm going to read this for you again, just so you can get a good juicy hold on it. And though we fully realize that our current bodies are heading toward the grave, I don't, do you guys rec- recognize that? Your body's heading toward a grave. I know it sounds sad. It's not that sad. You're going to be very happy with your new body, okay? It's okay to let go of the old one. And though we fully realize that our current bodies are heading toward the grave, we recognize that they cannot go there until our work is finished here on this earth. You have a job to do. The way I say it is, there's no premature death in God's economy. God has his time and his hour for each one of us. The enemy is all about abortion, miscarriage, and premature death. That's his business. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. But God has come to bring life and that much more abundant. The work that he begins, he brings to completion. Now, most of us would say, why? Jesus didn't seem to come to completion. He was only 33. He came to completion at the age of 33. See, 80 isn't completion. 969 isn't completion. That's God's business. And if at the age of 33, the father says, the hour has come, then Jesus says, so be it. Not my will, but thine. And 33 is the finish line. The current realities of the human soul. Still subject, the human soul is still subject to the pleas of emotion, experience, and the baits of human philosophies. It is at war. Though rescued from the oppressions of sin, it remains in hostile territory and must exert the authority vested in Jesus Christ in order to function properly in this realm in this time. We know that temptations will come, but we are to flee from them. We know that the temptations do not come from God. So our posture is combative and not receptive to the lions, bears, leopards, scorpions, and serpents that seek to destroy our souls. The current realities of the human body. The spiritual side of man and the physical side of man are slightly different in how they appropriate the cross work. Whereas the spiritual man is born again, made new and completely refurbished by the power of rescuing grace, the outer body of that man is still the elder version. It is still exposed to the outside world, which is still ruled by the principle of sin and a downward physical pull towards deterioration. It is still beneath the tyranny of natural law, which states that all things head towards death and decomposition. The outward body of a man is noted in the Bible to be changed at the second coming of Christ and not at the first. But the first coming of Christ offers us a grace over the power of sin. Thus, we are equipped with a supernatural power to accomplish that to which we are called in this body in the time span we are allotted by God. If we need physical strength for our task, it is available to us. If we need physical health for our task, we will certainly get it. 
If we need to defy death for a season, we will defy death for a season. Because our job is not yet completed. This attitude removes fear, by the way. You do not fear the unknown. You do not fear the strike of death in the middle of uh, something that you were planning. You trust God. Your life is in his hands. And your course will be completed. Your job will be done. Your job is to believe the record. Don't give the enemy any allotment and any grounds to bring about a premature death in your life. A premature stoppage, a premature miscarriage of anything God has in store. God must get his ends in and through our life. And that is the great battle in which we live. The Paul mentality. Just listen to this. This is great. Though they seek to kill me, deadly poison is injected into my body. They stone me. They scourge me. I'm shipwrecked. They imprison me. And a thousand fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand. I am untouchable, immovable, unshakable, fearless, and utterly unstoppable in the midst of this enemy territory. My inner man is made new and infused with the new wine of the spirit of Jesus Christ. But this new life is born about in this old dying body amidst an old dying world. And yet I march forth with supernatural energy that defies my physical weakness, living with fearless abandon, tireless unction, scaling cliffs of impossibility with all the nonchalance of a soul wholly kept by the power of almighty grace. Touch me not. Okay, I, I love this. Just wait. Bellarmine writes this. This is extremely fascinating. We read of a stag that roamed about in the greatest security by reason of its having a label on its neck, Touch me not, I belong to Caesar. Thus, the true servants of God are always safe, even among lions, bears, serpents, fire, water, thunder, and tempests. For all creatures know in reverence the shadow of God. What's hanging around your spiritual neck? Touch me not, I belong to Jesus. Do you belong to Jesus? Then like that stag, have you ever, you know, animals get skittish, because it's a native instinct within animals, but there's a reason for it, and that is they're hunted. If you know you're the hunted, what's your natural preoccupation going to be? Self-preservation. Fear. If you sense that you're hunted, which the Bible already tells you, yeah, you're the hunted and despised. Yeah, yeah, they're after you. And yet we are to not fear because we know that nothing can get through God. So therefore, we hang a note around our neck, just like that stag who could run free with abandon and say, hey, hey, read. Uh-huh, I belong to Caesar. Don't you dare touch me. And guess what? I love this last line. For all creatures know in reverence the shadow of God. Mm-hmm. The devil knows what he can touch and what he can't. He has no legal right at you. And as a result, though he will look and ply and tempt and try you to see if he can gain access... If you respond to every trial that he brings properly, guess what? You only get stronger. And the note around your neck only gets bigger. Touch me not! I belong to Jesus. Touch me not. I belong to Jesus. Are you calling God a liar? Should you fear an untimely death? Just a fascinating question. Should you fear an untimely death? Is it a reasonable fear? Because you could say, well, you know, I'm not going to fear some of these other things like empty bank accounts, but I do feel it's reasonable to fear an untimely death. I mean, I have kids to feed. Should you fear an untimely death? Should you fear the prospect of unbearable pain? 
I want you to realize I'm picking the few things that have a tendency to be our low-lying things that just sort of reside with us. I mean, most of us know that that's not a normal thought, that we're just concerned about unbearable pain on a daily basis. However, you bring it up, and you know what? I think there's a reasonable allotment for fear in that. Sure. As a natural person, I agree. I wouldn't blame you for fearing that. You're not a natural person. You've been bought, purchased by the blood of Jesus. You are found in him. You're a Christian. You're not an everyday Joe. You're holy and set apart to be other than this world. The rest of the world fears these things. You're a Christian. They can feed you to lions and wild beasts. And you sing songs as they do. There's something different about you. You know something they don't. You adhere to the record. And as a result, you will not be shaken. You will not be moved. You will not fear. Should you fear an impending doom? Should you fear tribulation, trials, and suffering? These are, that's our short list right there, isn't it? We as Christians, though, you know, we're, we're going to have a good attitude in certain situations, at least try better than others. We have low-lying residual junk. And this is what the fungus grows on right here. You need to have Jesus Christ fixed at the bedrock of your soul, not just in a few corners of your soul. What does the record say? So let's go through these. Should you fear an untimely death? That's at the top. Believe the record is going to be my statement to your soul. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Nothing shall in any wise hurt you. No man shall lay hands on you. The Christ's life is, life is preserved until the day. In the Bible, it's called the hour. Your life will be preserved until the hour. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Nothing shall in any wise hurt you. Haven't you read the record? Don't you know what Christ even says about his beloved? Don't you recognize what is found in the shadow of the Almighty? Hasn't anyone told you? Are you going to call God a liar? Believe the record! Should you fear the prospect of unbearable pain? For some of us, this is almost too much to even fathom. When we think of torture and we think of giving our life for Jesus and the things that they may do to us in a prison cell, we start to shudder and we begin to back off. Don't you know what the record says? You will not be tested beyond what you can bear. There is nothing that will ever come your way from the enemy that you will not have sufficient resource in your spiritual life to answer back with. Nothing ever do you believe the record. You have grace for help in time of need. Has anyone ever told you about the power of grace? If you ever have a time of need, you have grace for help in time of need. Who are you in? He says, come boldly under the throne of grace. And there is help. And there is grace for help in time of need. His grace is sufficient. So it's not just like he's going to dole out a penny of grace and you needed a dollar of it. If you need a dollar of grace, he's going to give you a few million. He gives you a super abundance for every good work. If he needs you to triumph, you will triumph. You won't just make it. He goes exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. Read the record. Believe it. And therefore, there is no such thing as unbearable in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The word doesn't even exist. Who came up with that word? It wasn't God. Unbearable? Don't you know you're God? Don't you know what he's made available to you? 
You have everything you need in Christ Jesus for life and godliness. Everything. There is no unbearable pain. Everything is bearable. In fact, you don't just bear it. You sing songs in the midst of it. One of my favorite stories is back, I think it was the 1500s, a pastor uh, that they are, he's taken from his congregation and he's going to be burned at the stake. They were an underground church and they were exposed and so he was going to be killed and be made a public spectacle to everyone that would dare follow him. And his congregation took him off to the side and said, but how do we know we can follow? Because we don't know that we could burn at the stake. I don't know what grace you have and what strength you have, but we don't have it. How do we know that we could endure a burning? And he said, watch. When I am being burned tomorrow, to demonstrate to you that God gives grace to me in the midst of the fire, when the ropes burn through, I will raise my right hand. By the way, when you are in a fire, you would pass out almost instantly. The fact that this man was still alert and conscious by the time the ropes burned through on his wrists, and then amidst the flame, could you imagine this moment to see the hand amidst the flames to say, God is with me in the fire. Every single one of us as the body of Christ must see that today. We must know that the God of that man lives today. Believe the record. Should you fear tribulation, trials, and suffering? Well, believe the record. It is in, in infirmities that the glory of Christ rests on you. It's in tribulations, trials, and sufferings that you are given a greater grace, a greater comfort and power to greatly rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's through false accusation that you are given grace to leap for joy and be exceeding glad. The more trials, the more joy, the more leaping. Let me me read this correctly. The more the trials. Well, that translates to the more joy, the more leaping, and the more songs come forth out of the believer. You bring on more trials, you get more grace. More difficulties, more grace. More challenges, more grace. You were complaining? No matter what hits you, you have more of Jesus as a result of it. The way that we get closer to Christ is through these things, not in the avoidance of them. The reason the American church is so skinny in their spiritual life is because we do not have trials the same way other nations do, where Christians are killed on a daily basis. This is not something to fear. This is something to embrace and say, God, allow me to have trials. Allow me to have that which I need to grow strong in you because no matter what the enemy brings my way, I know I only get stronger through it. You want to have more leaping, more rejoicing, more singing in your life? Get thrown into prison. Get falsely accused. That's actually what the Bible says. It's when those things are striking you that you have grace to triumph. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.